Welcome to 2022, our first podcast of the year. Happy New Year. I hope yours was safe and warm and Omicron-free and uh, filled with the best kind of merriment you can cram into a pandemic. Whatever you needed to do to have uh, a good time, I hope you had it. And I hope you made it through the end of 2021 with very minimal testing. That's, that, you know, the best we can hope for at this point. Did you make New Year's resolutions? I typically don't do that kind of thing because I'm never, ever going to adhere to any wish I might have for the new year. More exercise, more turmeric, more sleep, be nicer, all those things. It's daily pressure I don't need. Uh, and, of course, being nicer shouldn't be a problem. <laughs> but the rest of it, you know, you're always thinking about it. You're destined to fail if it's an everyday thing. But here's what happened. I was walking past a music store. This is like a few weeks ago. And there was a drum kit there. And the drum kit was awesome. And I went, hang on a second. The year's almost over. Maybe it's time to try something new. Take up an instrument. That drum set is calling me. I don't know why. It was just attracting me. It was sexy. It was shiny. It was silver. I won't go on. It'll embarrass us both. The point is, it was summoning me. And I thought, you know what? Maybe I'm a drummer. Maybe it's calling me because I am actually a guy who should be playing drums. And I should have been playing drums my whole life. Then I started chastising myself. Why didn't I play drums? Why didn't I get into it? What was I doing? I wasted so much time. <laughs> I, really, I really went down the, uh, down the stretch of, uh, of, of self, self-loathing. But then I said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to think about this. So I went home and I thought a lot about that drum set. I thought about it the way you might think about a future sexual partner. I was really letting my mind wander. And uh, I was getting excited. And I thought, you know what? This is it. I'm 51 years old, and I am a dormant drummer. This is my calling. I could totally visualize myself behind the kit, pounding away. Maybe I'll start a band. Maybe I'll even sing for the band. Maybe it'll be a late-in-life Don Henley sort of thing. You know, a transformation. A midlife or a little over midlife uh, metamorphosis, right? I get a couple of young guns together. We'll get a good name for the band. We'll write some songs. We'll tour. <laughs> I mean, I really, I really thought this thing through. So I woke up the next day and I was like, I'm buying that drum kit. I am going to become the drummer I was always meant to be. 2022 is the year that guy makes his debut. I was like, for sure, sold on that idea. Then I thought, before I went to the music store, I said to myself, okay, let's just do a quick thought exercise before we get carried away and change everything about our life. <laughs> let's, let's do a quick, just a quick drill. And here was the drill. I imagined I bought the drum set. I set it up in my house. I got rid of my couch. <laughs> I got rid of a couple of tables move things around. I'm all rigged up. What would I do? How would I begin? Well, I would need drum lessons, right? Okay, that's fine. Of course I would. So I said, well, how would a drum lesson go? 
how would I absorb knowledge? So just as a sample, I went to YouTube and it was, the title of it was the most basic drum lesson ever. And I thought, okay, great place to start. The most basic drum lesson ever. And the guy was like, really nice looking, spoke very clearly and slowly, you know? And I thought, all right, well, this should be good. If I can handle this, I can handle I can handle the drums. So he was like, hey, everybody, you got a drum set. Congratulations. And I was like, well, not yet, but I'm getting it. And he was like, let's just start at the very beginning. And I was like, all right, perfect. And he said, okay, this is a regular count. And I thought, yep, I can, I can comprehend that. One, two, three, four. I'm in, right? Now I'm halfway to turning off the YouTube video and going to buy that drum set. Then he goes, all right, the second most basic step is you want to do every time you count out as a beat. But now what you want to do is for every one count, you want to hit the snare twice with two beats. And I was like, come out. What the hell? What does that mean? Every time you count once, you hit it twice. Fairly basic. Intuitively, I understand it. I can explain it to you. I couldn't do it. My brain couldn't comprehend it. And I went, well, I guess I'm not a drummer. <laughs> that, that was a very exciting 24 hours. I couldn't handle step two of drumming for morons. So I'm not a drummer. <laughs> anyway, so uh, long story short, uh, there's no drum kit in my house. There's still a couch. Nothing's been moved. Nothing's been changed. And I realized I'm not a drummer. I am the interviewer. That's what I do. That's what I do best in the world. So let's do that. <laughs> let's, let's not go for an indie rock midlife thing. That would be uh, unattractive probably. I don't think anybody wants to watch that. Let's just stay behind the mic and interview people about them playing instruments in their life, not me. So, that being said, let's get on with the show. I'm Alex Green, and this is the drum-free Stereo Embers, the podcast. Check this out. Features my guests today on the program, Christopher Turpin and Stephanie Jean. Let me tell you a little bit about Christopher Turpin. Stephanie Jean 
and Ida May. Well, the story of Ida May goes all the way back to when Turpin and Gene played in the Bath-based alt-rock band Kill It Kid. With a sonic attack that fell somewhere between Nirvana and the White Stripes, Kill It Kid recorded three fabulous albums and earned a reputation for being a ferocious live act. Influenced by Delta Blues, the likes of J.J. Kale and John Martin and obscure British folk, the band hit the ground running with their 2019 debut, Chasing Lights. Having left their native England for the rich musical soil of Nashville, the band dug in and got to work, playing shows all over the world, including the Newport Folk Festival and opening slots for Willie Nelson, Greta Van Fleet, and Blackberry Smoke. They've recorded with M. Ward and T-Bone Burnett, been hailed by everyone from American songwriter to Rolling Stone, and the release of their sophomore album Click Click Domino cemented them as one of the most exciting bands around. A wicked blend of bluesy howl, folksy finesse, and affecting harmonies, the husband and wife team of Ida May bring to mind everyone from Fleetwood Mac to the record company. I love these guys, and this is a great chat. So here we go, me and Christopher Turpin and Stephanie Jean of Ida May having a conversation right here on Stereo Embers, the podcast. back for a few months because we were like well we're not going to be on the road and our visas only let us kind of work on the road so we were like good opportunity to come home and see family and hang out again so we hadn't been back in ages yeah like eight or nine months and before that we were back and forth all the time because we were touring as well so we'd be back here right in and then suddenly for like eight or nine months we hadn't been home at all so it was nice to get back actually i think we made the right decision as well because the pandemic definitely went on longer than we thought. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that was, yeah, it seemed to keep remixing itself. It just never seemed to stop. Um, how did it feel to get on a plane? Was it, was that kind of a little strange? Really surreal. It was, there was no one, I think there were six people on our flight to London, British Airways. Like a jumbo jet, Which yeah. in some ways was nice. <laughs> yeah, right, right. But so very strange. It was pretty it? surreal, yeah. As things start to sort of feel like they're going back to normal, do you, can you envision the playing field resetting itself and doing concerts in person without feeling anxious? Because everyone talks about the, the, the fans being comfortable, but it's really important that the artist is comfortable too. So have you, have you thought about that and what that might yeah. look like? Yeah, well, I th- we're about to be vaccinated, I think, in the next couple of weeks, week or so. So I think once we're vaccinated, we'll feel relatively confident. To... I think it will definitely be a case of festivals first. Mm. And the more outdoor venues, like if you were to say we were playing a club show next week, I would be a bit like not ready for that, not comfortable with that right. crammed in together, you know, but it's the festivals and the bigger venues. Um, and a lot of the shows we, we have booked in, like we have a London show in August and it's still going to be socially distanced. We're doing two shows in one night so that they can keep people socially distanced, which I'm comfortable with. 
Yeah, that's okay, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. How have you guys always done that sort of meet and greet thing? Were you were you very present with the fans and how does that change? Yes, I mean, right up until the pandemic hit, our last show was just outside of San Antonio. San Antonio in Texas. And even that night we were, you know, we were hugging everyone. Shaking hands <laughs> and all these friendly Texans hugging and pictures taken. So yeah. I mean, especially for an independent band on our level, you know, any show we got, we would finish playing and we would go to the merch stand and we'd every have a, you know, a queue of people and we'd meet and shake hands and have pictures and every single night. So you do that six and a half weeks in a row. That's a lot of hands. Yeah. So we were on the hand sanitizer routine long before. We were a long time ago. <laughs> long before all of this. So. Yeah. 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 It's funny to watch when you when you meet somebody now and you normally would do a handshake or a hug, everyone, there's a really awkward moment now between everybody where we go, what, what do we do? Do we, do we fist bump? Especially being British, it's incredibly awkward. <laughs> yeah. It is, you just wave from a meter. I, I would imagine for an artist, um, you know, for, for those who, who are singing for a living uh, and playing music, I would imagine that protecting your health is, a, is something you've always had in place anyway. Uh, because getting sick would compromise, right? Whether you're singing or not, we, you know, you're if you don't feel well, mm. being being in a performative element um, or having a performative job, that that changes everything. Because because I, I teach college for a living, and I know if I'm if I don't feel well, if I get a cold, or if I I know that I'm not, I just can't really be effective. So I'm always really on guard about that. Or have to, is that something you guys always have in in your minds anyway? Definitely. Yeah. yeah, I think, yeah, probably the first person to, to have realized that in many of the interviews that we've done. But yes, it is a case of you have to be match fit all the time. And also that your body is on a, in a constant state of kind of quasi adrenaline rush to kind of keep your immune system hyped and to keep everything hyped and to keep you healthy and you're always on to the next task. So you never really give your body a chance to, to kind of get ill. We always recover. found that we would come off tours and then we would get ill. Um, as soon as we sort of stopped. And of course, our um, levels are through so the roof. And, we're you know. very, very aware of being healthy on the road and we'd eat well yeah. and try not to, like if we were going to have a big night out, try and time it with a day off or something and not do that too often. As much as we would love to all live the rock and roll partying lifestyle when you're actually constantly on the road, it's you just can't do it and perform to you, the way you want to. Mm -hmm. We can't mm -hmm. anyway, especially when there's two of us, you know, there's no band um to hide behind it's very much us and our voices and our performances. You could probably get away with it as a bass player. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> Only <know> there. <laughs> <laughs> but it does make you think about, about uh, you know, people who did live the rock and roll lifestyle and you wonder like, well, it, I mean, it may, it's kind of a grim thing to think of, but it sort of makes sense that, that a lot of people didn't make it to 30 because that rock and roll lifestyle the hedonism yeah. of the the breakneck sort of pace of it. I'm sure that that, you know, it makes sense that it would that it would take people out pretty early. Mm. Yeah, the uppers mm. and downers. I mean, I dread to think. And also just the know. exhaustion levels that you have to deal with. And the pressures and everything. Yeah. You know, and before knowing the risks of you know amphetamines and that sort of thing, and taking that, you know, it would have been fantastic. Hey, you know, Elvis, take this pill, you'll be fine, and you'll feel, you know. You know, I can see how people were very easily caught in those traps because they didn't know they were traps in part. That is know. one, I think, better side of the pandemic is that I think there's been more mental health awareness and with the musicians as well, there's been more awareness of health and mental health in general and musicians and on the road and 
it's been nice that there's been more open conversations about how tough it can be, you know? Yeah, because mental health is as vital as physical health. And obviously the two are, the two are completely connected. Um, so there's, there's pacing yourself for, for your physical health, but also um, recognizing like, hey, maybe we've taken too, on, too much on right now. I need, I need time to just sort of take a beat. So I would think that the, the pandemic in some ways gives you a moment to sort of collect yourself. I mean, it was a year. Um, how did you guys do in terms of figuring out what the future was going to look like in the healthiest of ways? Did you formulate a different kind of plan? Well, to be honest, I, I, we were so exhausted because we moved from London to, to Nashville and we said yes to everything. So we played every show and every bar and every storefront until we worked our way up to, to getting the shows that we were. And we really hadn't stopped. And me and Stephanie were driving ourselves, you know, in a four door you know, saloon, car, you know, just, just us for hours and hours and hours on every single tour. And some of the ones, some of the shows we were flying from Europe, you know, straight into shows and onto the stage in Kentucky, you know, so we hadn't rested. So it took us about, I was still exhausted about three months when the pandemic hit, it was quite a relief to slow down and to take, take a beat and to, to look after ourselves. Cause also we found ourselves when you have more kind of gaps between tours, you're able to actually physically prepare. So you'll go running and you go to the gym and you'll eat healthy in preparation to then go on tour. And we hadn't had that, that, that kind of stop gap in a long, long time. So it really made us think about, yeah, our health and, and just the future in general as well, being so nomadic like we had been for so long. Uh, it makes you just, you know, kind of, I think with everyone, just hone on what's incredible, what's important what's to you. Important. Friends you're constantly rolling family. like we were. You don't have time to think about anything, and you're, um, and that was part of the reason we came home halfway through the pandemic is because we suddenly felt that um, separation from our families. Yeah, you know, I think everyone did. As soon as something as dramatic as that hits, you suddenly go, "Oh, where, where's my family? Where are my friends?" You know, and we really wanted to get back here for the the pandemic for that moment and that was quite special and we were lucky in the sense that in terms of work we had most of the record written and we were at the end of an album cycle hoping to start recording another one at that point and um, so we planned another sort of two months of touring that got cancelled and then we were going to do the record so we just started recording the record it would have been much harder it would have been yeah. harder if we had come off tour and there was nothing to do or we'd, or we'd had an album coming out it would have been yeah. a lot more we had friends tricky. whose albums they've been working on for several years had, were just coming out and all that investment of course just it was kind of been all the hopes were kind with. of dashed that would have been much more difficult I think so we were quite lucky that we were right at the end of the cycle how do you feel in terms of you know when, when you're sort of trying to establish yourself you're in that position where you're saying yes to everything and which I totally understand why you would why you'd have to do that. Do you feel now that you can start inserting a few no's in there? You, is <laughs> something you can do? I think so. Well, you know what? We were getting to a point, sorry, where we, we definitely could. And now the pandemic has hit again yeah, and say. slowed us down. We've lost some momentum. There might so. be a few more yeses than we would have done at the beginning. There's of the definitely, pandemic. we're getting match fit to be prepared to go out and slog it again like we did. For, yeah. But there's always tools. things as well. Like we were in a rock and roll band when we were young, since we were 19. And there were things we said yes to and did then that there's no way or places we stayed and things like that, that I would just say no to now. So I think as you keep going on the road, there are the things you get offered and you just say, 
no, you know, we just need, with age that comes as well, the no. <laughs> right, yeah. right. And it, it feels weirdly good to say no. <laughs> it does. Doesn't yeah. it? Yeah, especially within the arts where you spend so many yeah. years doing everything for free. It's very exciting when you can say, no, that's, no. that's not enough money or that's, we can't do that because of X and Y, you know. Yeah, it's like the, the times I feel most adult is when I say to somebody, no, I don't think that's going to work for me. And, and <laughs> that, that took me like 45 years to get to that yeah. place. Yeah, yeah, we know. Yeah, it's hard. It's hard, but it feels good. And it's it's also but at the same time, you do you know, you do realize that sometimes um, doors will open if you say yes to something that you're not totally crazy about. It could put you in a situation where something really cool could happen. So sometimes you might anguish over like, is this the right no to throw down? Is this the right yes to throw down? That's a tough, that's a tough decision sometimes to make. Yeah, and that's where your team comes in because we'll say no to something and then our management will, will, will try and persuade us as to why <laughs> it's a good idea. And then we say, no, it's not. And then if it is a, if it does turn out to be a bad idea, it's on their shoulders and we squabble about it internally. So that works <laughs> <Okay>. quite well. <laughs> um, in terms of the trajectory of your career where, um, you know, you're, you're certainly involved with a lot of really amazing people and some in incredible opportunities have happened. So obviously you've said yes to the right things. And um, has there ever been any moment where you thought like, I'm in a room with someone who is, this is very intimidating to me um, and how did you, and this is an, an instructive moment, I think, for young musicians who listen to the show. How do you handle yourself when you're working with somebody that you really respect and, and admire and maybe makes you a little bit nervous? Um, how do you approach that, that mentally and artistically? That's really a really good, a question. good question. I think the main thing is we are always quite prepared. You know, we have been in rooms with people where we're like we've greatly admired them for years and you know we've been nervous um but we always you know if we feel prepared and confident in what we do then we know i think we both feel that we can be good enough for whoever you're working with or they don't like it then you know that you've done enough preparation and you've not come in not knowing what you're doing you know it's so i think that you have a lot of acceptance is involved because especially in music everything is so subjective you're never going to be the best guitar player. You're never going to be the best singer. You're never going to be the best songwriter. You're never going to be the best producer. You're only going to be you. So in that respect, you really have to just understand your kind of place in, in the kind of food chain. And also that, it, I don't know how to put it really. It's odd as well, because the higher up you get, we've found anyway, the more successful yes. the person we work with, the nicer and more welcoming they are. So, for example, when we did like the Willie Nelson dates and Alison Krauss, we were both obviously terrified and we felt right. like we shouldn't really be on the bill and we were like, had a bit of imposter syndrome, obviously. But um, when we got there, the crew was so friendly when we first arrived. We met the fam like everyone in the family and we met Alison Krauss and she was lovely and everyone was so welcoming and kind and offered to help us with our gear and carry stuff on stage. and. And we were just overwhelmed with, wow. And it instantly made us feel comfortable and made us feel like we deserved to be there. Which and I, yeah, and I think as well, Steph is saying as well, that being yourself, it's a bit of a cliche, but being very comfortable as a musician and an artist, because there's nothing worse, especially in music, which is a conversation, getting overly nervous or overly hyped up. And sometimes over-preparation can make things more mm -hmm. difficult. So it's, it's very much, 
trying to relax into a situation uh, and accept accept your limitations but also in music like i say it's very very subjective but we're all working with our own kind of creative compasses we have a very strict internal dialogue with ourselves as to what is good and what is bad and that is the beauty of the arts is that the artist is makes up the sets of rules you know you, you make up your own kind of remit and how you operate and what you work in and what is good is and what is bad so I think it goes down to the, the very beginnings of everything. You have to make sure you're really happy with every lyric you've put down, every chord change, everything that you've done, so that basically you cover your ass. So by the time that you do get these, these shows and you're out in front of you know, thousands of people, you can confidently feel that, you know what, I tried as hard as I could every stage of this. So here I am again, just gonna do the same thing. I guess that's how we we yeah. prep for some of it. But it, ne it never gets yeah. easier as well, especially meeting kind of heroes and people like that. We definitely found that the people higher up with successful careers that we admire are normally the most lovely and down-to-earth people that you've, you've ever met. It's, it's the people on the up <laughs> that are kind of jostling for position where the ego... Well, I think some people mistake... more aggressive. ...thinking that they have to be appear overly confident and like, to have a big ego is, is the, like, the more professional way to do it, you know, which I think is actually the opposite and... Um, makes things harder. It makes things yeah. harder for you if you come in like you own a place sort of thing. It's better to start with humility and work your way up. I yeah, be, be thankful. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree with you. And, I, and I, I like what you said about being prepared because there are... I heard, uh, I heard a comic uh, say once that he was hosting the ESPN uh, Sports Awards and he was up there and he got terrified. He thought, I can't pull this off. And he, then he remembered, oh, yeah, I've prepared. I'm actually ready for this. I'm going to be I'm going to be just fine. You sometimes forget you to overwhelm and you forget like, oh, I'm I'm up for this. I'm, I've got this. I've actually done the work. Yeah. 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 And that's it. And at the end of the day, as a performer as well, you're just having a conversation with people, really. So, yeah, you're not the best guitar player, but you're not the best thing or whatever it is. It's like, well, you're just going to go on stage and share what you have. And some people are going to love that. And some people aren't. And that's just, you're going to have to read the room and you're going to have to move with it. And this mm -hmm. is what we're doing this evening, you know. And it also, at the end of the day, when you're on a stage, you're just an entertainer. So you just got to show people a good time for half an hour, an hour, and that's it. <laughs> you know, there's not that much pressure in that respect. If right. you really boil it down, you know. What's the conversation between you guys when it's over? How, how critical are you of the performance and when... Because I got myself into a situation when I started doing radio when I was a teenager. I would do the show, then I'd run home with a cassette and listen to it kind of forensically and make notes, which sounds like a really mature, smart thing to be doing at 17. But it also started to kind of make me overanalyze uh, what mm -hmm. I was doing. Where it got, I felt like I was painting myself into a corner because the moments that thrilled me were so few and far between that I was trying to replicate those the next show because I was aware that I was going to be listening to it. It, was, it, it became a really weird process. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. Even just saying it out loud, oh, that doesn't sound healthy at all. Um, <laughs> but for you guys, so at what point when the show is over, do you sort of come together and go, well, that went well, or what did you think about that? When does that well, conversation happen? I think we're the king and queen of underthinking yeah i'm going to be on it, it get to us. of working with um produce the producer ethan johns and in the, in the kind of remit of of music that we make and the way we write and the way we perform and americana roots folk whatever you want to call it um we are very aware that we are making a creative choice 
in sometimes keeping things a little rough and a little raw and very much in the moment, whether it's on record or whether in some of the songwriting process. Mm. And especially live, we kind of make a choice that we are kind of on our toes a lot of the time, especially as a duo. If we were performing in a larger outfit in a band, you do need to analyze and talk and discuss about, okay, you what were out worked, of time here, yeah. this didn't work, you need to drop out, less hi-hats here, whatever. When, when we're in a band unit, we, we've had a lot more of those discussions, but when it's just the two of us, we like to be able to kind of change on a, on a sixpence and, and improvise and mess things up and you know change so to be honest we don't overanalyze don't, i also feel like if i started to overanalyze i would probably <laughs> never go on stage again but, right we, we thought about what we were doing and who was out there and you know and my voice in a sense as well because i you even get overwhelmed when you put your favorite artists on or whatever and you think about artists that have come before you and blah 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 i mean it would be overwhelming to to analyze and compare yourself to anyone else that like you sort of get so yeah. insecure you probably wouldn't do it and what i do what i mean as well is when it's a creative choice is when you're in the studio and it, and you're recording so for example you were talking about editing yourself and going back and thinking and worrying and pre-performing when it comes to making albums and records um especially working with ethan we learned that our first takes or very very early takes when we were unsure and nervous of what we were doing when we weren't thinking about where our voices were landing, where we weren't thinking about the tuning, where we weren't thinking about the timing, and we were just in the moment performing the song. They had so much more emotional weight than when we performed them perfectly, especially in comes to click tracks and da da da. So we're very much of um, just kind of read the room and, and let that day and that room and that venue and that audience play out how it's going to play out. So we don't, mm. we really don't overthink. We discuss what went down well if we did a certain break and we were like, oh, that went down well sort of thing. But we don't sit and analyse the performance. Yeah, because you have to be so much in the moment when you're you know, playing and singing and performing full of adrenaline. You can't, you know, especially as a two piece when you can't drop the ball. It's, yeah, it's hard. It's hard to kind of, I don't know, implement any... It's hard to even changes. remember what happened sometimes. It is. <laughs> yeah. Which is probably good because it means that you, you've lost yourself in the performance, which is what should be happening. You shouldn't be aware of. That's the, the problem that I got myself into. I, was, I would go back on the air and I was literally aware of the fact that I was going to be listening to what I was saying in an hour at, yeah. right when I got home. And that, that really was not the best process. And it actually kind of threw me off the track for a really long time where um where i don't listen to anything i do anymore right mm. i decided that wasn't even a good that wasn't even a good process for me at all so now yeah. you know yeah. you you hear about actors who don't watch their own films and, and i remember hearing that i would think like that makes no sense but it's like yeah that actually makes perfect sense yeah, yeah. Well, we're much the same when it comes to our own albums it's like you can listen to your album almost up until it's released and love it and think about it and and then after that you yeah, you're on to the next you have to move on so we don't overanalyze on that sort of thing either. Yeah. Especially if other people are enjoying it, I'll just let them enjoy it. If, like, if no one was listening and it, everyone hated it, I might analyze it and go, oh. But so far people- Even really, then, even, even then I don't think I would. But, but, you know, <laughs> want, and also you don't wanna, I'm always nervous. People always talk about our voice blend. And we've never thought about that. We just started singing together and it sort of worked. 
So even with that, I'm nervous to work on that or concentrate on that too much because, like you say, I don't want to become aware of it and then almost ruin it because yeah. I'm aware of it, you know. And it's funny, especially on stage, people say that we have, you know, a chemistry and an intensity and we definitely realise that there's so many amazing duos out there that are do writing incredible music and astonishing players. But I think when we've been pushed into a situation where it's a larger show, we do have a kind of... Um, Something. But I know, a kind of adrenaline it? thing that we have that almost becomes the, the third or fourth member of the band. So, yeah, we don't want to overthink that. <laughs> I know what you mean, because well, I'm a writer, and when I was in, when I was in college, this, this girl who was really, really smart and she liked my work and she was so sweet. And she said to me, I love when you, in your poetry, you always refer to things in threes, right? And I thought, wait, I do? I didn't even, I didn't even know I did that. It's just the rhythm of my brain. That's how mm -hmm. it came out. And now 30 years later, every time I do that, I go, well, oh, there's the three thing again, right? <laughs> yeah. I, still, I still am aware of it in a way that I wasn't, I never would have thought of it. Like you were saying the voice blend, yeah. I never would have even thought about that before. Yeah, um, we did. Yeah. Right. So, you, yeah. so you, you don't be too aware of the stuff of the magic that happens if someone points it out. No, I love the voice blend, and it's kind of like, wow, well, this is. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so that being said, how much do you listen to the responses that you get from people, um, and how do, and how do you know how to compartmentalize that to protect yourself creatively? Well, well I think when it comes to live. Um, we we are kind of pretty naked because it's just the two of us so it is what it is you like it or you don't but we've had we've been bona fide now by enough of our heroes and people that we really really respect musically that we don't really need i don't need any more accolades in, in my life we're aware that we'll always get yeah. bad reviews because all musicians do and we tend not to read written or online reviews we just read and we're lucky that on social media it's generally always positive. We have a very positive fan base and we encourage, I think what we put out is quite positive and then we get that back. Um, yeah. But we wouldn't go delving onto the internet to look at what like the press thought of the record or anything. Well, to be honest, I, I, don't really, I don't really care so much because I think really as an artist, you have to think long, long term and a long ball game and everything that we're working on, we're very aware that this, this is gonna last, out, outlast us. You know, so mm -hmm. it's, I think about what my family will think further down the line or in years to come when they think, what, you know, what were they doing when they're in their 20s and their 30s? And, you know, people will always make mistakes and it won't, might not be as good as it could be. But at the same time, we're, it, it's more about, for us, creating our own kind of world sonically and creatively and not trying to be a copycat of anyone else and just creating this thing. So to be honest, outside influence like that is, isn't particularly helpful. And also our taste in music isn't particularly commercial <laughs> or uh, popular. So I, I don't know whose opinion I might, you know, there, there are certainly a lot of people that we really do admire, but I think you can get into a dangerous position if you're, if you're starting to write music to please tastemakers, because I mean, you're in an impossible situation there. It's like in the past, we've been signed to record companies where we started, I realized that a lot of the songs I was writing were to suit the taste of the A&R man, mm. you know, and oh my word, Which is scary. <laughs> that is somewhere you don't want to be, you know, so we, we try not to think too much. And um, I think that's something that's come with experience as well, because I know that 
when we were 19 or 20, you know, we, if you got a bad review in Enemy or something, it would really and I, and I upset think, us. Whereas now you sort of, this is what we do. And we can yeah. only be in this situation because there's two of us. If there was just one of us, it would be, it would be harder. Mm. But to be honest, we're always discussing in a bubble. In a bubble and Steph's quite a harsh critic sometimes, as am I. So it's, <laughs> you know, we kind of keep each other in check. And we're on the same page 99% of the time, but it's a way of us always, you know, making sure we're happy with our output at least. You know, there's always a second opinion. If I was at home, you know, with a laptop yeah. or Steph was working on her own, it would be much, much harder. You need, I'm sure you would need more critique. If you're looking like you made it know that for every restaurant that has 20 people reviewing it with five stars saying that they ate this bowl of pasta and saw god the 21st review is someone giving it a one-star review and saying this is the worst place in the world so it's like well, what are you supposed to do with either of those things 
Yeah, and especially when it comes to what we do in, in writing music, when when it's a miracle that anybody kind of it's a very self self indulgent thing writing your own music and expecting people to listen to it anyway. You know, <laughs> in some ways, it's it's very. <laughs> so it's you know we're just glad that anyone can can find some reflection in what we do, but we never really expect it. You know, I was talking to uh, Justin Curry of Delamitri, and he was he's a huge fan of the Fall and Joy Division. But you don't you don't really hear that in the music of Delamitri. It's kind of interesting how he loves them so much, but but that's not what you're that's not what you're hearing, right? Is do you have tastes that might surprise people that who are fans of your music? Where you know are there punk albums in your collection? Are there is there stuff that's abrasive or um, or surprising that you actually tend to gravitate towards? Definitely, I think. Yeah, we're quite weird in that respect. We listen to anything and everything. It's probably the yeah. reason our records are quite, you know, everyone always says all they're all place. over the place, you know, in terms of genre and style. Not, not, not genre or style, but in terms of dynamic. And that's partly, I think, because of our listening. I mean... I mean, we love a lot of stuff that people would expect us to love as well. Um, you know, like early country blues and British rock and roll. And soul and, and jazz. And all soul the, you know. and kind of the alt folk scene in the UK in the 60s. We're into all of that, but... But then I don't think we actually listen to... We love a lot of Nick Cave and then, like, you, like... Chris w- is listening to loads of obscure synth records. I've been here. listening to a lot of... Uh, <laughs> I mean, I've been listening to a guy called Lorne. I've been listening to him a lot. He's, he's an amazing sound designer... Uh, it has this amazing record, uh, which has, yeah. It's all synths. It's all very good, all lawn. It's all sound design, it's, there's no vocals. And then at the same time, I'm listening to, you know, Archie Fisher and Dick Gowan, Handful of Earth, which are like <laughs> serious Scottish folk singers from the early 70s, <laughs> you know. So we listen, just kind of absorbing as much as we can. And I think as well, we're getting more and more excited because our first album, we just had a set of songs that were kind of, we just wrote, and that's what we were, and we were forming what we were doing. And second album, we were on the road so much that all the songs were very much kind of knee-jerk, that we just wrote them, they happened, and now they're coming out, and we recorded them in a frenzy at the beginning of the pandemic, having come off the road. And, and now for album three, which we're already in the midst of writing, it's really exciting to, to have, have that body of work behind us and to begin to think more about, okay, how can we shift and change? What can we do? How can we manipulate and massage more? And thinking more about those elements of all the different types of music we listen to and how we can begin to reconstitute some of those ideas and, and sonics and create mm. something a little, a little different. And Nick Cave is somebody who I would think that, though the music doesn't sound like Nick Cave, there's a lot to be learned from Nick Cave. And I would imagine that, that somehow Nick Cave would inform uh, choices that that one would make because he's such a master of of songwriting yes well i think anyone who is a master or the best at what they do in that in that genre whatever those genres may be is always incredibly inspiring um for us especially yeah yeah absolutely and i think we spend a lot of time in the in our early days going back to the roots as much as we could you know especially of rock and roll discovering early blues music and early country music i was quite obsessed with getting back to the source and really learning inside out you know you know just like any you know i enjoy kind of academia in that respect and the musicology aspects of going in and finding these people and unearthing these songs and i think now we're in a position where we are beginning to you know come back more into the modern world and see what we can do with it so 
Yeah, and, and musical transformation is interesting because if you look at the Beatles, if you look at the first record to the last, I mean, that's an incredible creative trajectory, which wasn't even 10 years, which is staggering. Um, Nick Cave, if you look at the birthday party um, and then you go to, to the present day, it's like, holy cow. I mean, you, you see the through line, but the birthday party were abrasive and aggressive and the new stuff is not. It's totally different. When you think about your own creative trajectory and what that could look like, um, it's really kind of cool to hear you say that like, it's almost like opening up a little bit with listening to synth music or listening to the roots of the music you're playing. It almost feels that like, you know, what you're saying is like anything is kind of possible at this point sonically. I think we're at a point as well with just in, with, you know, streaming services and that sort of thing that genre is becoming more fluid and flexible. Yeah. Whereas I think we had quite a lot of dogma. We were in an early rock and roll band and we got compared to a lot of American rock and roll bands like the White Stripes and the Black Keys. And we were a pretty heavy outfit at that point. And we were just kind of pigeonholed there because it's, it's easy for people to do. And yeah, I think we definitely, uh, I think we had, yeah, to break off this idea that, hey, that's not, not just what we do. That's not who we are as artists. Yeah. And, um, and as well, you know, it's still a challenge because, for example, one of the main ways of getting music out there today is, you know, Spotify playlists. And if you listen to certain playlists, like, I don't know, Acoustic Coffee Morning or whatever it is, you know, having a stroll in the woods or, you know, you know, they all have <laughs> a certain sonic quality that these tastemakers, these kind of musical coordinators are, are deciding on. And our music, again, does not fit in any of these categories. But thankfully, we've, we've been... We've, we have been able to be shared and, and, and kind of been, yeah. been discovered through some of those roots. I think sometimes people forget as well that if you're a musician, you become a musician because you love music and you're very creative and you put records out and people a lot of the time just want the records. They want you to do what you do because that's what they know. But because all musicians are creative, like the idea of doing other things and we've done like some soundtrack work before and things that are nothing like we did a poetry record with a friend and nothing like what we put out there but it's just so fun to do and like making up small pieces that are, or like using different instruments that you you wouldn't use on your own records and it's it's I think it's important as well for musicians just to not sort of churn out the same records that you you do you know yeah and to um, really explore that and you discover things it's really exciting yeah, and it's, we're very aware of that with textures and sounds, you know. Like if yeah. I'm playing a resonator guitar, well, it's really exciting to mix that with, you know, a Juno and a program beat and, you know, you know, finding ways to recontextualize these over-familiar sounds almost mm -hmm. is, is really exciting. And especially because we self-produced our last album, you become a kind of kid in a sandbox and you realize that all these things are just toys and you're just playing, you know, it's like, you know, you've just got a lot of colors and a canvas and you're just throwing shit around until it's, you know, makes sense, you know, and that is really exciting. Um, that is really, really exciting. And I, and I hope, you know, we're in a position now where the democratization of recording and that sort of thing that we, genre is going to melt away even more. And mm. I think we'll find more really interesting pr production techniques and styles and, or we won't, we'll find the opposite. Everyone will just copy each other and co <laughs> copy and paste more and more, but who knows? <laughs> I mean, it, you know, it's like being a creative person is you're involved in a process that you really can't master. And so the thing, the thing to do is 
I always liken being an artist to being like Sisyphus, where literally you're just rolling the, the, the boulder up the hill and then it's going to come back down because and that's what keeps you keeps you going. Um, so I think the way to answer that is to just be really creative and just try a bunch of different stuff because it seems like that widens, you know, the perspective and it widens the potential output. Um, because, you know, you, you never write a song and go, well, that's perfect. I think we're done. I think, I think I've, that was I'm going <laughs> to be a lawyer now. Like that, that doesn't happen, right? You, you still continuously go back to, um, you know, the creative process to create something. So really it's not about a specific way of conquering it. It's just feeling like um, the process itself is is almost the most important element rather than the output. Um, so hearing that you guys are, are gonna sort of think about widening it up, that to me, you're right, like try different things. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's, um, yeah, it's something we think about quite a lot, actually. Sorry, we're just plugging the laptop. I'm just gonna plug here. you in. <laughs> Oh yeah, no problem. But I'm, yeah, I'm glad to hear that you guys think about that a lot because I, I think I think you should, right? I think that's something that's probably a wise thing to be thinking about. I think you're right in saying that the work should be the reward, really. You know, and, and it is, it is addictive. Well, sometimes even if chase, you go yeah. off piece and then you're like, well, that didn't work, and then it just ground you back to where you should be. It's worth going there to, you know, realize that what you were initially doing was probably. And I personally love that. You know, I, th I think being big audiophiles and music fans that we are I get really excited in being able to go back and you know listening to a song that I know of a certain artist and then thinking you know oh, what on earth what else did they put on the album where where were the, where were their heads at what else was going on you know and that's a really fascinating thing to do and why the album as a as a as a body of work is still so important because it you know, it really, you know, like from Dylan or Springsteen, you can go back to that moment in time and what was pouring out of their creative minds or something. It's, it's exciting. Were you guys, did you feel supported by your families growing up when you were entering a creative life when that became very clear? Um, was there a good support system to encourage you to do that? Uh. I think I was luckier. I mean, my mum my, my is a piano teacher and runs a community choir and my dad just loves music um so it's kind of like you know if you can make a living doing what you love go and do it and Steph, my parents were definitely i grew up learning classical music and um i think they were dubious when i left university to join a rock and roll band at 19 and now i'm a bit older rightly so um you <laughs> right. know i was off with like five guys in the splitter band for about five years around europe so in hindsight I totally understand yeah, the slight mistrust of what I was doing. Yeah. But ever since we started at El uh, Ida May and like, you know, to be honest, ever since I brought back Donovan's autograph for my mum, she's, she's been cool <laughs> at all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that'll do it. Once you, once you, if your parents, this is for anybody at home, if your parents are having trouble with your career choice as a musician, get them Donovan's autograph and everything will be okay. Every time. <laughs> Now they're incredibly supportive of everything we do. And I married Chris, so, you know. Stuck with it now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's right, right. But I, I'm glad to hear you say that a little bit of age has given you perspective where you go, well, I see where they were coming from at 19. Definitely, yeah. And it is a harsh industry. And I'm sure you've had conversations that have led that. It's a harsh industry, and route. it's also a mystery as an industry. You know, most, unless you've worked slightly inside it, the idea of the music industry is just a weird 
you know, it's very mysterious to most people what goes on other than the actual gigs, you know. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, what, your, what, what your day-to-day is, you know. Well, we're going to make a career out of this, but what does that mean, mm. you know? Yeah, so and also, yeah. it's so hard because I, I think also there's the element of being looked at is something that, you know, like you were saying that when you when you meet really accomplished people, they're so nice. But as you, as your profile increases, you're being, there's more eyes on you too. Um, you're being looked at in, and evaluated by people. Um, and that, that must be weird too. I mean, had, have you guys gotten used to that feeling or do you try not to think, even think about it? That's actually the side of it um, I don't think either of us like very much. We love meeting people and we love playing shows. I feel like that's almost a different bubble because people are there to see the music mm. and generally very respectful of you. But everything you have to do on social media and um, a lot of the amount of yourself that you're expected to give now is quite ridiculous, really. If we really went for what some things we were asked to do and the amount of platforms we're supposed to be on and yeah. what you're supposed to show people of your lives. Yeah, um, we really dislike it. It's kind of we awful. Dislike it. But I'd it's love just... to be able to put out records and, you know, be that mystery faceless band that has a really successful record. But And maybe right. one day we will be. But the reality is that you have to be the face of your music and kind of your brand, if you will. And you have to engage with people because people now just expect that they want more from their artists they want a personal relationship and you know the instagrams give people a window into your life you know and, and people want as much as they can get i think of that uh, and that's very unnerving especially when you're writing songs and on stage you can hide hide behind a, your persona and, and also the characters that you've written into your songs you can hide behind all of that but then all of a sudden having to you know ho- hold up a copy of your own album and and talk to your fans through an iPhone saying, you know, please buy this. It's very, very it's strange. It's very unnatural you know. to us. We do do as much of it as we are comfortable with, but it's not, it definitely doesn't come naturally to us. I think some people, you know, like you're saying actors, some people are naturally kind of actors and musicians and, and performers in their daily lives. And then you have the opposite end of the spectrum where people are very, you know, reclusive, you know, the Kurt cobain types or, you know, of the music industry that just don't want to have to deal with it. Um, and it's always, uh, somewhere in I guess we're some, yeah, somewhere in between. Tr- trying to handle it is really, really difficult. And I'm not sure, I think this is just how it's going to be you know, from now on. And it, it's scary that with the internet now, you're just open at any moment. Right. Someone throw a banana skin on stage, you know, <laughs> from any direction, you know. Well, I, mean, I, think, I think we're so lucky that we never had to deal with Nick Drake on Instagram. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, I mean, he w- I don't think he would have been good at it. I don't think he would have done it. But I mean, the idea that like, you know, uh, because sometimes there is a kind of um, mythical illusion that happens where Nick Drake is a good example of someone who we don't know that much about, really. I mean, we do biographically, but um, the idea that he, we didn't have that relationship with him through social media almost keeps that mystery alive right it's something we think of a lot and it 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 upsets us that we're not able to do that in the same way to be honest trying to find the balance between keeping a distance um and then just now if you're an uh, if you're an independent up-and-coming artist you genuinely don't have a choice if you want to engage your fans and you want to keep your fans now um Uh, yeah and, and we're 
we're lucky in that, like I said at the beginning, a lot of our fans, we've literally met at the merch table and we've shook yeah. hands and we've hung out and we've had conversations and we'll see them again and we know faces. It's, it's quite a personal relationship we have with some of those fans. So in that respect, we're more willing to talk for them. But at the same time, we'd, we'd, I'd rather keep my you know, private life and my personality offline and just keep the music and the creative bits online. Mm. But yeah, and the, the kind of Dylan-esque kind of hide behind a you know, screen of your own hair or Nick Cave doing an interview once every how many years or something, you know, that would just be fantastic. That's the it? dream, but, but it just doesn't work anymore. Not for us, it doesn't work <laughs> that way, you know. No, and, and I think, it, you know, you know, right now, it, what's happening in the news is the tennis player uh, Naomi Osaka, who pulled out of the French Open because she was sort of saying, like, I don't really want to hold press conferences after I play a match. I don't want to go over it. For, in the same ways we've been talking about how we don't want to forensically go over a performance he just did. Um, and I'm very, I'm very sympathetic to that. I totally understand where it's sort of like you just played a three-hour tennis match. And now people want to ask you questions that are not taking your mental health into consideration. You guys have a marriage uh, creatively and personally. And so there's like layers uh, that are vulnerable um, to the public, right? So uh, to public scrutiny. And I would think that protection is really important to sort of preserve that element of yourself that, um, that people don't get to scrutinize, that don't get to talk about. And so I would imagine that's a very tricky tightrope act to have. It is. I think the way we try and do it is everything we talk about online has to do with Ida May and what yeah. we're doing. Um, and we've been asked numerous times by various record labels to put more personal content online or, you know, people want to see what you're doing every day. So, and we've just outright said no, even just in the sense of the amount of work it takes to create content. And I don't want to spend all my time on my phone. I'd like to be playing piano, like, occasionally as a musician, you know. Surprisingly difficult. It's surprisingly <laughs> difficult to get time to play music when you have to keep up with all these you know, interactions online. But I think that's the way we try and do it is everything we do online is focused on on the band. And, and I think we're quite good. I think a lot of people imagine that because we're a husband and wife duo and our songs are, you know, love songs or whatever they are, would assume that they're all entirely autobiographical. And yeah, I mean, some of them are, but a lot of them are, aren't. They're just wrapped in ideas of moments of stories of things. And so we do feel a little, we don't feel like, you know, overly attached in a way you know we're quite down to earth and and if it all blew up tomorrow and we had to be binman i think we'd be fine yeah it'd be quite nice <laughs> <laughs> you know, we care about the work more than we do the you know yeah when you do things that are that are not about the music when you have to do a photo shoot have you guys become comfortable in that or does that still feel really awkward and weird you know, photo shoots and videos, we've, just had to. we've, you get we've been doing it since we were 19 and we now just pose and get it done in 10 minutes. And the last few photo shoots we've done, actually they've been like, oh, that was good. And we were like, we just learned that if we just do it without being insecure and without faffing around. It's less painful it's for less everyone. It's less painful for everyone, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't do one by choice, but that way, you know, it's part of the, that is part, of, you know, the press shots thing and everything, that is part of the job. You've just got to get on with it. I'd say 99%, if not 100, of everybody I talk to, um, when I ask them if they're introverted or extroverted, they all say introverted. And, and then I sort of point out, 
the obvious thing, which is that you're an introvert, but you're in a performative profession. Um, are you guys, would you consider yourselves introverts? And do you find that to be ironic that you, if you are, that you are in a profession where you, you do have to kind of broadcast yourself? It's really weird, isn't it? Mm -hmm. that, that, that so many people find themselves in this situation. <laughs> I, mean, I said, I'm an, I would say I'm an introvert. You're less, you're not I'm, an extrovert. I'm not an extrovert, but I'm less introverted than you. But I think, I'm, if, like I said before, if I thought about going on stage, if I actually, she sat down and thought about going on stage in front of people and doing what we do. I don't think I would do it because I just, <laughs> you know, it's a strange thing to say, but we love making music so much. And I am, the older I get, the more I like being in the studio more actually than being on tour and on stage, mm. which I think is pretty normal. Mm. Um, I'd say I was more extroverted than you, but I'm definitely not a natural performer. I think a lot of people, when you, as you as you grow up, as yeah, kind of shy, sh shy kids, it becomes more of a challenge to your to your own self almost, without realizing as you get older that, you know, all right, I'm going to do this now, you know. And that's why you have a persona. I remember so vividly there was one when we were in the rock band a long time ago. There was um, a certain date, like a Swiss festival or something, and in between it there had been. This is when we were a lot younger. There had been a load of time, and I'd been like a full-time nanny for those like four weeks um, in that period. And then I remember being side of stage and having just been sort of nannying for the last month, about to go on stage as like this rock and roll outfit, like head to toe black clothes, heels and stuff and thinking, what am I doing? <laughs> <laughs> what am I doing? I was doing the school run last week. I can't do this. But, and you have to, then you have to separate yourselves and become you know, not necessarily someone else, like you don't become, but you just have a persona or a, US, a small disconnect from your true self to then get the confidence to be on stage. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but but you do have to become somebody else. You're right though, I, th I mean, you're absolutely correct. Like I've always, I always would be very curious to know, I always thought about this, like if you knocked on Robert Smith's door, you know, at two in the afternoon on a Sunday, he's not going to answer in goth regalia, right? He's not going to have like the yeah. lipstick and the hair. He's not going to be doing that. He's probably going to have like, you know, like a, a scruffy beard and wearing a ripped pair of shorts or something. I mean, it, you can't you can't be full time that persona. And I think that's important uh, in, in ways of protecting yourself is that you do kind of have to like it's showtime. There is a showtime element to to that. So I totally get what you're saying. Mm. Yeah, definitely. There definitely is. Yeah, and, and I, different things help with that. I think. I think having some time before a show, being in a venue environment, even like outfits, like you say, like a lot of people have stage makeup and stage. Like we just have outfits that we wouldn't sort of wear down the shops, you know. So <laughs> that sort of stuff actually really helps. It's all part of it. Yeah. Also, the bit. I mean, Ida May is a really good name to sort of. Uh, hide behind sound it sounds like i'm saying something i'm not saying i mean it's it's protective in the sense that like if you're justin bieber you have to it's it's tricky because you have to sort of realize there's justin bieber the persona and justin bieber the person and i feel like maybe he hasn't figured that out or maybe he has with ida may you have that sort of protective thing where it's almost like a shield um, because yeah. your names are not ida may right so it's like so that's helpful i would imagine in that way it is, yeah. We, we, we realize it's a, quite a strange name as well. It's funny, we, we kind of thought it was 
in long tradition of bands, British bands with silly names like the Beatles, for example, or what have you. So we kind of felt that it just it, it was a name that summed up um, the kind of romantic element of of what we did. And it's it's a name that we, we heard in one of the first songs that we learned to sing was called Ida May, uh, an older blues song uh, by Lightning Hopkins and Sonny Terry. But also it's a name that has German roots and we spent a long time playing in Germany and Irish roots and Steph's roots and my early roots. So we just thought it kind of strangely embodied the kind of Americana thing that we were we were doing. And it's yeah, also everyone's grandma's it. name down south. Yeah, right. quite a lot of people in America <laughs> have grandmas and dogs. Yeah, is in our yeah. favour because a lot of people check us out because their, their sweet grandma's name was Ida May. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think in many ways that's, yeah, I think it's a really, really uh, sort of lock-picking name where people feel almost like a kind of familiarity with it. Um, uh, oh, people ask yeah, which yeah. one's Ida and which one's May. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah, it, you you have sympathy for that for Hootie and the Blowfish, where it was like which one's Hootie and and right that whole thing that people yeah. do. Um, and just out of curiosity, when you, I'm in a state being in California, there's always that mythical idea of let's go west and oh California dream, and there's a kind of idealism that's attached to my state. Um, you don't get that with with um, Tennessee, but at the same time, there is expectation of what what does Nashville mean as a city. Um, when you're sort of growing up in, in the UK and you think about Nashville, I think it does have a mythical quality. Was there expectation and how did how does the city meet those expectations that you guys had? There was, yeah. I mean, there was a, a lot of talk about Nashville with a kind of burgeoning new young rock and roll scene and being a boom town with kind of Dan Auer back there and the White Stripes and some great labels and younger artists like... Um, you know, Aaron Tazjan and people like that. And there was kind of a thing happening. So we wanted to be a part of that. And a lot of people have asked, you know, why did, why did you move to America? Like, you guys love American music, don't you? You know, sort of thing. And so, well, yeah, we, yeah, but we're not all about that. It was more, I was watching an interview with John Lennon quite recently where he was talking about, you know, why did he move to New York when they wanted to kick you out and they didn't like you and da-da-da? It was like, well, you know, it's just the same reason, you know, like, I would have gone to, if I was born, you know, many years ago, I'd, in the heart of the Roman Empire, I probably would have moved to Rome because it was the center of the universe. Like stuff was happening there, you know, and now it might be China or somewhere, you know. And it was kind of the same with us with music. It was like, well, you know what? It's the heartland of a lot of the music that, that we love and, you know, Western recorded music from Memphis and, you know, uh, Nashville and, and down south Mississippi and New Orleans and all of that. It's like, it was always a hotbed for a lot of the rock and roll that we love and a, a lot of British rock, rock and roll bands have loved. So, it was a case of just, well, let's go and be a piece of it, see if we can, you know, kind of stitch ourselves into the patchwork quilt that is being made out of there at the moment. And um, it definitely, it lived, definitely it lived, lived up, up yeah. to it. It lived up to it. Um, you know, every time we've been to the States since we were young, something exciting has happened. And it does feel to us, especially like the land of opportunity, you know, the tours we were getting in the States and the response from the crowds. Um, and also just the amount you can play and see and discover just in one vehicle. And they're very important. Yeah, and very yeah. Em Nashville specifically and America, I think, is very embracing of a dream and idealism like that. Yeah. So, for example, if we're like, you know, oh, we're in a rock and roll band. We just came from the UK. We're putting out an album. People are like, awesome, great. Where are you, here, people Where are you like, playing? Fuck off. You know, <laughs> what are you doing, really? Like, who do you think you are? It's, you know, whereas in America, it's very much, wow, fantastic, you know. 
And especially in Nashville, where there's so many writers and musicians every day there trying to make it, it's trying to happen, da 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 da, that when you, you begin to get onto a good thing, everyone's kind of behind you and quite supportive. And there was very quickly, we were lucky with the team we were working with to have fraternity of other artists that we were inspired by and friends with and could play alongside and could, you know, just basically be inspired by as, as much as anything. Mm. So it, it really delivered in that respect. Not that we were necessarily out jamming every night because we were too busy on tour. You know, we weren't right. really out. actually in Nashville huh. that much. But it's yeah. more this kind of fraternity of people being together. And when you do get together with people in Nashville, it feels exciting. You know, it's like this little rush of, um, look at us, like we're here in the center of this little thing that's happening. Yeah. And there is a kind of certain frenetic energy that it there is an energy and there get. is like all the cliches of you know you can go down to the station inn and someone famous will be sitting in or you can go to the, I remember the first day we that we were there we went for a bagel and Buddy Miller was having a bagel and we were like cool Buddy Miller's having a bagel <laughs> you know so it's inspiring it's cool yeah. that's cool you know there's musicians everywhere and when you're a musician that's what you want so. and you kind of have to up your game you know it's like I think someone said to me recently, you know, every guitar player in Nashville that's trying to make it was the best guitar player in their hometown. Mm-hmm. You know, so that, I mean, it's, the levels are, are high there, which is inspiring and it pushes you to think more and work harder. And yeah, so it's, yeah. And I think America in general, so I know California definitely has that out West. And for us, America full stop had that growing up reading, you know, Car- you know Carver and, and yeah. Kerouac and, you know, Hunter S. Thompson and all of this, you know. For us, getting in the back of the car and disappearing out into yeah. the middle, middle of the desert and with just a guitar in the back seat was just extraordinarily romantic, you know? Yeah. Uh, and we've, we've got the T-shirt now, so we, we feel that's a little <laughs> you know, teenage dream for us, well, for me at least. You know. Now I want to write a short story called Buddy Miller's Having a Bagel. <laughs> <laughs> Great chat. Ida May is the band. Ida May Music is the website. I-D-A-M-A-E music.com. AlexGreenOnline.com is where you need to go to find out what's happening with me. BombshellRadio.com is where you need to go to find out what's happening with our radio station. You can follow me on Twitter at Ember's Editor. You can follow me on Instagram at Ember's Podcast or just email me. Editor at StereoEmbersMagazine.com. Stereo Embers, the podcast, is available on all podcast platforms. Go to the one that you use, subscribe, rate, and review, and tell every single person that you know we would appreciate it. Let's close the show with a longer listen to Ida May's Long Gone and Heartworn. Enjoy it, and thank you as always for listening. I'll see you next time right here on Stereo Embers, the podcast, only on Bombshell Radio. To the music stars, from Atlanta to the Barry Slum, we've seen a hundred hearts.
Let the wind blow our names. Let us roll across the water. 